0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Canines Talking Sense, your podcast dedicated to everything detection. I'm your host, Cameron Ford, coming to you from Scent City out here in Las Vegas. So before we begin this episode, uh, there's been quite a bit going on. We are currently wrapping up a seminar with Michael Nesbitt. And there'll be a podcast following uh, up here soon when uh, he and I sit down and go over some great questions and great topics on detection and a little bit about what we did here in Las Vegas for this seminar. With that said, we've had some cognition seminars going on, lots of traveling all kinds of good stuff. And we've been sharing a lot of that on the social media. So if you're not following that, go follow Ford K9 or go follow Cameron uh, Ford K9. Uh, it's either at Cameron Ford K9 on either Facebook or Instagram. And with that said, I want to give a shout out to my trainers who have been doing an amazing job out here. Uh, first and foremost, Natalie Morris. Natalie has been doing all of the different sports seminars, also helping out with cognition. She's an amazing trainer. She does nose work competitions. Um, I've been putting her out there more and more. So that way you guys get to experience training with her, get her knowledge, her point of view, her perspectives, especially being a competitor. So if you're in nose work and you're interested in uh, one of the odor pay seminars, and I have Natalie available, I will send Natalie out there. On that same token, we have one of our newer trainers, Lily Strasberg. Lily came to us uh, recently via the Search Dog Foundation, but her background comes from cognition. She has a master's degree in cognitive science. She worked with Dr. Brian Hare at Duke University doing the canine cognition labs out there. A short time later, she was in Auburn working with Dr. Lucia Lauzerowski, uh, and then from there, found herself over at Search Dog. Before all that, she was she worked at Karen Pryor at the K- KPA Academy, doing course curriculum. Talk about a wealth of knowledge. Um, I'm so glad to have them part of the team. And then of course, Annie Jessup, Annie handles our dogs going through canine school, gets them ready for the handlers, and then runs handlers through their paces when they're out here in Las Vegas. So please go out there, uh, support them on social media. I'm trying to get them out and exposed to you guys and you guys exposed to them. So seriously, if you guys are interested in some of the seminars that we're doing now. Um, They are great resources, and I try to bring some of them with me uh, when I can, but I'm telling you in their own right, I love sending them places to work with you guys so you guys can see them too. And speaking of that, on the seminar front, uh, we made some adjustments recently. We've listened to you guys and kind of being out there on our own, seeing the topics people are really interested in. And one of those is Odor Pays. And when we go and do Odor pay seminars, it's various uh, skill levels. And one of the biggest ones was Power Fundamentals. That was always something where everybody kind of wanted to work on or needed to work on it and didn't know it. So what I decided to do was kind of create a tiered system for Odor Pays. So we have Odor Pays, Power Fundamentals now, Odor Pays, Detection Skills Building and Problem Solving. The next one's going to be odor pays and that one's going to be handler skill building and communication and then odor pays nose calluses push your limits. So we've now taken odor pays as a seminar and broke it into four pieces. So, like I said, power fundamentals, detection, skill building, and problem solving. Then odor pays handler skill building and communication. And then lastly, odor pays nose calluses, where we kind of push your limits, put you through a lot of tough kind of scenarios, and really test your skills. So, in the new format, you can just go to the Ford K nine website. You can see those uh, the ones that we already have planned for this year are on the website. Go check those out. If you want to schedule one, uh, just email us, info at FordK9.com, and we will get you some possible dates, come out to you, and host these events. Um, And on that last part, events, I get asked frequently, where are we going to be at? Uh, What seminar am I teaching next? Or if I'm in a region, who do they contact to potentially sign up? I've updated the website, all of the K9 events, the Ford K9 events, seminars, classes, you name it, is now on the website. So you simply click training when you're on the Ford K9 website, scroll down to all events, click on that, and everything I'm at, whether it be in Vegas or around the world or whether Lily or Natalie are at places, It is all there. You can search by location, you can search by class, you can search by anything, or just scroll through all the events and see kind of how busy we are and where we're going to be at. So that's enough about all of that. I want to really thank our sponsors for the podcast. Um, As usual, um, I really have to thank Precision Explosives. And if you haven't checked them out recently, there's a new little surprise there. They are now offering narcotics training aids. These are real odor training aids, legal to possess. So you don't have to have a DEA license. He has been able to uh, get the narcotic odors, and these are pure odors, onto materials that are legal for you to possess that have the narcotics odor on them. So... Go check out Todd Wilbur Precision Explosives. Not only do they have explosives, they also have narcotics. Also, of course, Dr. Michelle Mon and Jenna Gadbury over at Psy uh, Canine. The home of the TADs, those of you guys that know what the TADs are, the training aid delivery device. Uh, that's a great way to store your odors or keep your odors protected when you're out training. Leash and Harness Coffee. They support fellow dog handlers. Buy some coffee, support a good cause. And that same for Honest Pet Company. Honest Pet Company is another one. You buy equipment, proceeds from that order go directly to helping canine units around the United States. So all of those are great causes. Please go out there and support them. Go check out our YouTube channel for all the new YouTube videos that we have. We have a bunch online. We have more coming out. Uh, The online classes are up and running. They are going to be linked to all of our members. So members, you'll be getting an email where you can go check out all our new online courses, as well as there'll be a few new webinars popping on. So if you're a member of the 4K9 website, you'll be able to get some more webinars to download as part of your monthly membership. So about this podcast episode, this episode is... One with my good friend Mike Ellis. Mike Ellis and I have known each other for over 20 years. The first part of this episode is going to be a little bit of us reminiscing and catching up with one another. It had been a minute since we've done that. Um, So bear with that. Also, bear with, there's a little bit of some digital artifacting kind of going on. The Zoom connection for the call wasn't the greatest. It's not the worst, it's not horrible. Uh, But you'll hear a little like, you know, kind of thing when he talks a little bit. But you can clearly hear what he says. Um, But I'm now becoming more of a perfectionist when it comes to my audio. And I don't like it when there's those little artifacts that kind of begin or end when a word starts. So, again, I apologize ahead of time. Not much I could really do. It was the connection and Zoom. So I made the best of it. It's still a really good, pretty clear episode. You can clearly understand what he's saying. Uh, it's not too, too bad, but now that I'm becoming more perfectionist about this, I do very much care about your guys listening quality. So this episode, we get into a lot of great communication aspects when it comes to detection dogs, we get into a little bit of training stuff that bleeds into that. So I really hope you guys enjoy this episode and I'll leave you with this. I am going out to Mike's place in May. So we will be doing a follow on podcast where we are together in person and then the audio quality on that one will be really good because we'll both be sitting next to each other with our really good microphones and having a further conversation based off of this podcast. So after listening to this episode, if you have an idea about something you would like us to talk about, email me and I will be happy to bring these questions with me. When I go see Mike in May, and we'll sit down and record it and answer some of these questions. So, enough about all of that. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. As usual, please send me your emails, info at forwardcanine.com. I am always happy to answer them. You know, give you guys information regarding certain uh, questions you guys come up with, guests you want to hear from, telling me when audio is bad <laughs> when I don't already pick it out myself. So again, thank you guys for your support. Go out there, give us the reviews. Please give us the uh, four stars, five stars, whatever it is on your platform. All of these things really help us out. Uh, share down below. Tell us uh, you know, the, the guests that you've liked the best or the episodes that you've enjoyed the most, uh, the information and so forth. So without taking any more of your time, Off to the episode with Michael Ellis, episode number 63. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Canines Talking Sense, your podcast dedicated to everything detection dogs. I'm your host, Cameron Ford. Today, I get to have a guest on who I've known for, gosh, well over 20 years back when we were on a Yahoo group <laughs> on the old discussion list called the Malinois Handler. And his career has exploded. He's done lots of things. Many of you all know him, so I'm not going to even go through anything more. Welcome, Mike Ellis, to the show. Mike, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. It's good to, good to reconnect with you, man.
0: Oh yeah, especially like I said, those old days of the Malinois handler discussion threads that we,
1: yeah. <laughs> long before <laughs> social media ever existed, before before we knew any better to stay off uh, internet oh, and things like that. Yeah, good lord! I
0: think that kind of taught us some of those lessons to to do that. But yet, oh, yeah, here I am still doing it. So yeah, so much how much I learned. <laughs> so, this is yeah, exactly. So um, obviously. I know a lot of my audience knows of you or watch a lot of your videos. Cause I have lots of multi-discipline type of listeners. So they do all kinds of sports. They do uh law enforcement, things of that nature. But you know, what I want to know is like, how did you get into dogs? You know, I want to get in a little bit more about you. Like how did you get started? Where did you go and how'd you get sure. to where we are at now?
1: Cool. Um, First, let me say thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, I started uh, as a kid. So like many kids, I wanted a dog really badly and bugged the parents until they finally caved and let me get a German Shepherd when I was 13. And they said, but if you get the dog, you have to train it. So I happened to take a class at the local German Shepherd Dog Club. And that connected connected with people there, got kind of into German Shepherds, got into AKC obedience while I was uh, in high school and got into showing confirmation German Shepherds and then I was 17 or 18 I think around 18 and I was at a dog show in Ohio and uh, they had a police and Schutzhund demo at that and I'm like I don't want to do that mm-hmm. <laughs> came home found a club got involved none of the dogs I had were remotely suitable so at that point I uh, I learned, started learning to do helper work and it was a long, it was a hobby all through high school and college forever. I kind of never really intended it to become a career for me, sure. but like any of those things, uh, it would pick up steam while I was in college. I taught some obedience classes on the side for some extra money. And then um, one of the clubs that I used to work with, um, I had moved away and they had a bunch of new members and they said, Hey, would you come in and kind of do a little thing for the new members and show them some stuff? And, uh, and I did, and it went well. So another training group asked me if I do another little thing like that, and Mm -hmm. it just sort of snowballed. And so at a certain point, over the next, oh, probably starting in my late 20s, I started to do seminars for dog clubs dog organizations, police departments. It happens to be the club that I started with shared a training field with San Diego Police Department when Mm -hmm. I was there. So I did decoy work for their trials and I got to know a lot of the law enforcement handlers as well. And so I wound up doing seminars for police departments, military, lots of dog clubs, uh, primarily protection sport clubs, but then it started to turn into obedience clubs and things like that. I spent close to 15 years traveling full-time giving seminars. It's um, uh, something you're very familiar with now, <laughs> yeah. Uh, a little bit. And, now. Uh, and um, at a point when I was starting to go, like I don't think I can keep up this lifestyle, you know, traveling 40 weeks a year, or 45 weeks a year. Um, I decided that I needed to stop. And mm-hmm. so, f- since I had spent the last 15 or so years uh, coaching other dog trainers, um, I started a school for dog trainers. And so that's been 13 years now ago that I opened up the. Michael Ellis school for dog trainers and mm-hmm. have been training people to be better dog trainers since then. And then I'm still involved in sport work and competition and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I, now in recent years, I'm starting to go out again a little bit and do some seminars and clinics again on the road. Yeah. I finally yeah. got, got away from traveling off. Have it be, <laughs> have it be fun again. Exactly.
0: <laughs> no, I can relate. There's, you know, what, one of the things that we share a passion about is the, the craft, the knowledge to, you know, be better about how we communicate to dogs, to be better about how we explain and train the people. How did you find your way into that more understanding the communication aspect, some of the science aspect to it? Uh, how did you get down that path versus being just what a lot of people do is be decoys and they're really great decoys. But you took it to that next stage where you went into, I want to learn about the learning process the communication aspects
1: uh, that's a good question My my whole life so in college uh i i have a degree in biogeography i've always been interested in science um i was into all kinds of animals and for me one of my chief interests in is when um kind of practice and the theory behind the practice come together and you can understand it. i love it when I get a scientific explanation for why something works. Something that you may have already known works, right? So mm-hmm. in the dog training world, you say, okay, I know this methodology works. And then you read the thing that a neurobiologist says or something, and you're like, oh, I see why now. I, that makes perfect sense. And that just always felt good to me, right? Yeah. I, I And I also think when I learned that my job was teaching, there was a point when I was giving seminars, and you sort of realize you can be good at something, but our job isn't just whether or not I can do it, but I kind of help somebody else do it. Mm-hmm. And so you realize, oh, I'm a teacher of people at a certain point. Yep. And for me personally, um, I think it makes me a better teacher if I can explain why something works, not just tell somebody, hey, this works, don't worry about why. Mm-hmm. And if you can talk about it, that reaches more people. And everybody kind of has a different learning style and a different way of kind of processing. Some people aren't interested in that, which doesn't mean they can't be great dog trainers. Mm-hmm. They're absolutely <laughs> exceptional dog trainers that. Um, kind of don't understand the stuff behind. But that's always been an interest of mine. And as a teacher, I want to reach as many people as possible. And so I I think it helps with that. So I I try to keep as current as possible uh, Mm -hmm. on kind of what the science behind what we're doing is as well.
0: And And it changes so frequently sometimes, or there's new things brought in, which I think, you know, and I'll let you speak on this too. Some of the frustration people go through is they're like, well, I heard or I read you know, this about dogs and then now another segment of the community, whether it be internet or another article contradicted what they read or heard. What's your advice on that aspect of how these things frequently change and how do you deal with it as a dog handler or in trainer?
1: Well, I I think we always have to be careful that we don't, um, change what we're doing too, too often, right? So there's yeah. an idea and I'm sure you're aware of it too. We used to call it seminaritis, right? Dog yes. training, a big part of dog training is consistency. Success in dog training is, is driven by consistency. So from a practitioner standpoint, once you've kind of made some decisions about how you want to approach something, you need to stay the course and you don't want to hop around between different methodologies and try a little of this and then change your mind and try a little of that. And I always say that um, consistent Less evolved dog training will frequently beat inconsistent evolved dog training in a sense, yeah. and so you have to be cautious about changing your methodology. But that doesn't mean you don't try to keep track of what's new, because things will continue to evolve. And science is like that. That's what the, I mean, science isn't uh isn't static. Science Correct. is really just just a way of evaluating information. Right? It's a process for evaluating information, and this is what we know now to the best, the best information we have. Mm -hmm. And when we're given new information, we'll reform our hypotheses, we'll test them, and we'll try to change. And so methods change. And so which is great, like it's dog training is way better than it was when I started, like by a mile and a half, Same. there's not even close. That said, we also have to be careful not to throw out the old stuff, just because it's old, right? Yeah, because some of that stuff is still very effective, necessary to know necessary to understand. And so um i think for people while they're taking in new information don't close yourself off to new ideas but also don't change what you're doing every five minutes either right? yeah uh, take that in process it and, and then there'll be a time for you to incorporate some of that stuff in just don't hop around and it's it's a hard time sometimes for somebody to be a beginning dog trainer i ha- had a conversation with uh, a, a, a joint friend of ours ivan balabanov mm-hmm. recently yep. we were talking about How we learned about dog training and it was a slower process because you don't have access to all the information we have now it's in front of you everywhere you can see any trainer in the world on youtube in front of you at any given time and so new people have the advantage of having access to exceptionally good information. Now Mm -hmm. they also have the overwhelming task of weeding through all of it and reading through all the contradictions they're faced with, which is really hard if you're a beginner, right? You don't know where to put all this. This guy says this, it makes perfect sense. She says this, that makes perfect sense as well, as far as I know. And and that can be a little bit overwhelming and people don't stay the course to get good at any one part of it too.
0: Yeah. That's so true because it's that double-edged sword that we deal with today that we didn't deal with uh, when we were going through that learning curve. We had to go read books by – Dr. Stuart Hilliard and <laughs> those that were out there back at those times, sharing the information. Um, you know, Ivan had put his book out. It was one of the, you know, at that time when books were the most important aspect of reading about training. Um, and then, you know, probably about, I would say a quarter way through our beginning times is when the internet started ramping up. We had those discussion groups where we could throw ideas out or mostly just call out the other guy's idea was horrible <laughs> and everything yeah, else. And well, that just just argue with Yes, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So the it's, you know, but you're right. No, it's, it's, I, I have empathy for those newer, uh, people getting into, you know, my world's detection frequently now, but anything, because you don't know what the good information is. You, you kind of have to follow what the popular one is in a sense. And that helps. Um, yeah. But like you're bringing up is you can't just jump. And that's probably the biggest thing I see happen is when someone may come to me, I could be fourth on the list, could be first on the list, could be eighth, whatever it is, they found, you know, me and then they're like, hey, I have this thing I want to work on with my dog. And, you know, as we dig deeper, a lot of times I see it's just the inconsistency. The poor dog has had methodologies change, conflict Uh due to these different things that have been going on that that's the struggle and not particularly one problem. It was just going into that communication aspect of so many different methods. So the, the, the other one, I question I have is what would, as you developed as a trainer, what was one of the biggest impacts that, that was, that you experienced that drove you down the path that you've gone down?
1: Ooh, um, (laughs) that's a really good question. So certainly there, there are a variety of points at which, my dog training journey was sent off in a very different direction. So yeah, that, that point in which I was in high school and I went to that dog show and saw like police dogs for the first time. Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, whoa, that sent me off in a completely different direction of exploration mm-hmm. that had I not seen that, who knows whether I would have ever wound up down that path or not. And then there are various trainers at different points that I encountered that, um, really changed the way I think about things or open my mind up to another way of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. One was uh, when I was training very traditionally for a Schutzen club early, there was a woman, I don't even remember her name anymore, mm-hmm. that I that, uh, I shared a field that the, another club shared the field, an AKC obedience club.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was the first person that really made me to start thinking about reward-based training in a serious way. You know, We were training quite traditionally and she had a dog out and it was training and we were coming to club. We used the field after they did and she was finishing up and I was watching her and I was like, Oh my, like how come her dog doesn't look like our dogs. look? Yeah. What's going on. Right. And that's sent me down a path there and made me start thinking about that differently. My initial friendship with Ivan Balabanov, mm-hmm. he is a definitely outside the box thinker mm-hmm. and has had a huge influence on how I started to think about what was possible in, in terms of, using reward-based training and protection work and things like that yeah i'm good friends with somebody you mentioned before dr Stuart hilliard who Mm. has had a huge influence on my life Uh, and his um original old videos that he did for canine training systems Mm -hmm. uh, especially the very first one on schutzen protection uh completely changed the way i looked at decoy work the role of the decoy yep. uh, as actor, as reactor to the dog, mm-hmm. because he was, so, he did that so overtly. I mean, good, good trainers and good decoys do that subtly. Yeah. And I think from the uninitiated, you wouldn't see it. They yep. twitch their arm they move their body a certain way at a time. And for the novice, that's not immediately Same. apparent. Yep. And his reactions were big, like a dog would bark and he'd act like you, somebody shot him and he's mm-hmm. falling backwards. <laughs> right. Yep. They were really big and it was, and it, it made something click for me in a way that was like, oh, of course, mm-hmm. like this is an interaction. This is a conversation between the dog and I and my reactions empower or do things. And it sent me off in a complete, so there've been many such kind of points in my career where somebody just kind of blows your mind with something mm-hmm. or something that maybe is- obvious to them and isn't it you and it really expands a whole the whole new level of understanding of how the process works so oh yeah and lots of those things
0: <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll throw one at you so for me it was godfrey dildi oh yeah so when i was i grew up in florida he was i was you know 30 minutes 40 minutes from where he was this would be i'm date myself now 1993 94 ish mm-hmm. sure. so yep. he was That's known right. as the hot dog trainer. And yep. <laughs> he was, I learned to put that hot dog in my hand and push it down like a Pez dispenser almost and have the dog nibbling the hot dog out of the back of my hand or uh, yep, exactly. <laughs> and then the, and then the hose, you know, using the hose, uh, as a motivator. And one of the coolest things was we were a police group and I was, you know, I think I was 18, 19 at the time. And I was the, you know, using using use an abuse decoy. So I would go out there and catch dog after dog after dog. And uh, one of the police departments, part of the certification, as you know, is to do a recall. And Godfrey's sitting there looking at us and he goes, why does the dog have to come back? He goes, why can't you just stop the dog with an obedient command, you know, such as laying down and then bring him back to you? He goes, you're causing conflict by saying go and then stopping him and tying the long leash to the dog, causing her, you know, the dog mm-hmm. to do like a backflip and all those kind of stuff and training. He goes, why don't we just start off with lay down next to you, send him for a bite. Then he has to go out to end a leash, lay down, send him for the bite, and then go to where he's running, lay him down, and then bring him mm-hmm. back to you. And then and then sometimes bring the decoy to him. He, if he, He's like, if the guy is always down there, what is he always going to want? And I was, like I said, 18, 19 years old. I'm like, wow this is so cool. And <laughs> we, we were the only police department. I say we, cause I was just a decoy for those guys that did it. But the uh, agency in that central Florida area that went out there and for USPCA, that was unheard of at that time. Everybody did the full running recall dogs called run dog runs out, called back has to turn around and run back to you. And at the national championships, the dog runs out, the handler yells plots dog skids to a plots and then brings a the dog back to him. And then the whole audience was like, Whoa, what is that? <laughs> and then they had yep. to have the judges get together side, like, is this within the rules? Did he use an extra command? You know, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, but it was one of those moments by just being there with Gottfried and and watching how he broke down our training and was like, it's not making sense to your dog. Your dog is conflicted and confused because there's what he wants down there. He doesn't know when he's trying to gauge based on the distance of a decoy. Is this a recall or do I get to come back? You're losing speed, all of these things. And so I, I figured you get a kick out of that one because that's a, oh, yeah. a, an old name from. Oh, yeah, he was.
1: That's, that's another person I could have thrown him in the, the list as well. Like he was there at the time that Godfrey landed in America and started to make videos and do seminars and things mm-hmm. like that. His students were tearing it up. Yeah, competition wise. Yeah. And f- training with food in obedience was oh, yeah. absolutely unheard of at the time. Mm-hmm. And he was doing that. But you're, you're, the, the hose tug thing is awesome, right? I have a store here full of <laughs> fancy tugs. Yeah. And my original tug. So I took the garden hose, chopped it up. Yep. and <laughs> 14-inch winks and I had a whole bunch of chunks of garden hose. Oh, the yeah. The cheapest you'll ever make. Exactly. We used those like crazy. And we'd burn
0: right through them, oh, too, yeah. especially if it's a really oh, yeah. nice dog and with a great bite that hose didn't last for anything. Uh, and then finally, some of us got smarter and figured out sandblasting hose was better than the garden hose, plastic. but way more expensive. So we yeah. had one local guy that would go grab, I don't know, how many feet, 50 feet of sandblasting hose from someplace, and we'd go out there and be like, oh, yes, we got... We got the best hose now to last us at least yeah. a month. So, yeah, that's I figured you get a kick out of that just because that just dates the two of us <laughs> how long we've yeah, been doing you, it.
1: I, I think, like, the moral of it is if you stay open, that like no matter how far you are on this journey, mm-hmm. like a, as you spend more time with dogs, mm-hmm. you get surprised less, less often. So, it's easy to get closed off. And if you prevent yourself from doing that, you get to continue to have those moments. Yeah. Like, you know, you're, like, hopefully we're not all, none of us are ever done evolving. Nope. And so it's always when people say who invented this or who invented that, it's it, it's it's not like that. It's it, the information's out there and it kind of builds on it and people find a new way to move around with it. And and, and the more that gets disseminated, the better everybody gets at dog training, which is, you know, should be the, the goal ultimately. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's, there's, it's too many to, to, to even count if you, if you start to begin to think about it. Oh yeah.
0: Know? My, my Doc Hillier story is kind of funny only because, so I get to my air base in Germany where I'm stationed at and they give me this dog that was the problem dogs. I'm the newest handler. So I get this dog that has an out problem. And when it lets go of the bite, it'll run around behind the uh, decoy and, do a back bite or whatever else. Cause probably <laughs> this was a KMPV dog that was trained back when. So mm-hmm. the out was to the rear to guard. And then of course, when the handlers kept reacting or decoys kept reacting, they would bite the back. So I'm sitting there and I forget what it was. And this is before doc had been part of the MWD program. So this was, mm-hmm. like I said, this is yeah. the, you know, mid nineties, mid late nineties. So I had his Schutzen book. And just like you said, I had the videos where he was doing those old suit videos where he went to Uh, the French company where he, in the videos that shows him getting sized for the suits and
1: from Jean-Michel Moreau, I think. Yes. Old Moreau suits. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: I, so I get his book and I'm reading his book and he's talking about, you know, teaching the release, teaching the out. And instead of, you know, the typical corrections, one of the things you can do is have the dog be pulled into the bite versus pulling away and doing the opposition reflex and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So of course no one ever wanted to help me decoy for my dog because they didn't want to get bit in the back and all these things. And for the first year or so they stuck me on a ammunition dump where basically I was just in a chain link fence field with all these little hills in the, in the background. And all I had to do out there for, you know, 12 hours on a shift was sit there in a car with my dog or walk around So I'm like, I'm going to train this dog one way or the other. So I back tie him to a pole and I started doing my own decoy work with my own dog. And I started applying what he was showing in the book. And lo and behold, the dog starts letting go and I'm not using heavy, any types of heavy corrections, which is all we knew back then. And the dog was becoming really good. So I have one guy who comes to relieve me one day and I'm like, Hey, can you do me a favor and just be decoy for my dog? I don't know if I want to do that. I'm like, believe me, it's working. I'm doing some stuff. All right, let's see. So I do it. The dog's just popping off the bite, doing really nicely. And he was like,
1: I've been here three
0: years. How the hell are you doing that? And I'm like, well, I had this book right here. And and of course, I got so, you know, massacred by all the other trainers and handlers because I wasn't following the typical MWD way. And I got this dog to do it. Um And then the irony was it was maybe three or four years later, Doc Hilliard becomes part of the MWD program. So I'm like, Oh, Oh, isn't that funny? The guy who I was reading the book on, you know, is now part of our, our program. So, yeah, yeah,
1: he's a brilliant dude. He's a remarkable, remarkable man. Oh yeah. And I, I I think the people in the sport world now don't know about him as much because, but early on he was very active in that world Mm -hmm. too. he, Help write the, the the early books. He, he wrote uh, scripts for Ivan's original videos, oh, Ivan okay. original videos. Mm-hmm. Stuart scripted those, and um, he was the person that brought Ring Sport to America. Yep. Oh, yeah. The original, yeah, yeah, Ringsport, yeah, yeah, yeah. The original right. Ring Sport seminars mm-hmm. in Colorado in the late 80s. That was him mm-hmm. before he wound up at, at Lackland and has revamped their detection oh, yeah. program. Oh, he runs yeah. their breeding program now. The, he's just... He's a brilliant man and a wealth of information experience. Like oh yeah. And I I I'm I'm trying to get him to come out into the world a little bit. I like know. he's a little bit of a recluse these days. Yep. Because I think there's a whole new generation of dog trainers exactly. that are exactly after he's disappeared into the military and they don't necessarily know about him. And he's an extraordinary man. And see so she he should get out there and exactly the The only ones
0: that know him now uh, regularly obviously the the military guys and one of a friend of mine jason dill he's down there at lackland and he's with doc frequently so jason and i just became friends you know doing contract work back in the day so i always you know we we talk back and forth and uh you know he's Uh, Same old doc, you know, out there just at Lackland. And like you said, I tried to do the same thing. I wanted to get him out more frequently. Uh, This was a while ago because I was living in San Antonio for a while uh, from Mm -hmm. 2000, shoot, 9 to 13, I believe it was. And, you know, we had talked a little bit then when I was out there. But just like you said, he's, he's doing what he's doing. He either is in a breeding program or he's in, you know, the training or procurement or whatever it is. And, Busy, uh, yeah, yeah. So if, if we can dig him out and, and get him exposed to a whole new generation, that in itself is, we'll have to give ourselves the a dog high five world, on that one.
1: <laughs> the, dog, the dog world would benefit. Oh, 100%, a hundred percent,
0: a hundred percent. and just a new voice. So that leads to another question, which is what do you like best? about training dogs wisdom things that you're just like this is? yep i love this this is you know
1: my zone i mean i like the the development of a young protection dog is something that still is near and dear to my heart for mm-hmm. sure there's no doubt that the foundation bite work stuff yep. i i still love right it's mm-hmm. getting harder on my old and less a flexible body but <laughs> yeah. i i really i really like that i i like developing young dogs in general the, mm-hmm. that puppy in adolescent phase where they're you're kind of controlling their yes first experiences and you get to watch a lot of doggy aha moments mm-hmm. like th- that developmental stuff i really really like um the the finishing work of getting a dog done and getting out and competing and deploying them and a lot of that stuff is is satisfying And it's sort of the end of it's what you do at the end of that process. But I'm, I really enjoy the process and especially the adolescent phase. Yeah. So that's still probably my favorite part of it. Right. For sure. And I, and I keep thinking, Oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'll do other dog stuff, but I always come back to it. I, I, it's like, I can't not do it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No, it's like you said, I find it the same way. It's rewarding. It's something about taking that, little lump of clay of a dog and turning it into, uh, what it will become, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then that journey that you go through, because man, it will challenge you. They will not ever be always the same.
1: Yeah. There's
0: qualities that are there, but there's, it's just something throws a new challenge at you.
1: Every and single dog. Yeah. yeah.
0: And as a trainer, it really keeps you thriving because once they get to a certain point, then you're, let's say, maintaining mechanics and maintaining performance and you're doing things and you're, you know, pushing yourself to be better. But that beginning stage is every day sometimes is like, oh, what did, I didn't see that yesterday. Where did this thing come from and
1: how do we work and through that's a, that? A, a, and that's where you really get to know the dog too. Like you have to figure out what makes this dog tick, how mm-hmm. to, you know, how am I going to approach training with this dog? How quickly can I move? When can I introduce certain things? You know, at a certain point, you have a variety of ways frequently of approaching the same kind of problem that you've developed over years of working with different kinds of dogs. You say, oh, this temperament type, it's maybe it's better if we approach this exercise this way uh, or whatever that is. And so you get to kind of figure that out. And it's like a puzzle each time a little bit. And then that's where the dogs make big strides. They go from nothing to something. Right. And you can watch it happen in front of you, which is just incredibly satisfying for sure. Oh yeah.
0: And with obviously so many people that look up to you and follow you as a trainer and, and apply the things that you share, who do you look up to the, you know, what, what drives you, what things are you paying attention to that you're like, you know, I'm that's, that did something for me or that spoke to me or that got my attention.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, all of the people that I've mentioned so far certainly sure. are people that uh, I admire greatly. Like they're Ivan Balabanov, one of the people that I talked about, I don't know anybody that, um, like he's a dog savant. Yeah, like, so he takes he does, it to a different level for sure. He does stuff that I'm going, that shouldn't work. Like yeah. <laughs> I've been and there he, too he thinks with the problems him. Yeah. And then you go afterwards and they're like, wow, that's, that's beautiful stuff. Like yeah. he, he thinks like a dog. Yeah. <laughs> like in a way and so i'm always uh, no matter what, every time i see him and every time we train together it's a, it's always kind of an incredible experience but the, there are so many good trainers out there now mm-hmm. they're they're in the sport world especially there are they're fantastic trainers everywhere. Oh, yeah. there's an igp trainer here near us named tim cutterson who's very active in igp now S- smart guy great trainer mm-hmm. incredible technician you know anytime you see anybody doing good dog training it doesn't matter now uh, part of it is watching the next generation of kind of european ring sport trainers come up right mm-hmm. ring sport near and dear to my heart of course has been kind of a traditional discipline for a long time it, ha- it hadn't evolved very much it wasn't necessary that it evolved very much in terms of the training methodologies mm-hmm. you know they Pretty much trained with a fair amount of pressure and relied on good genetics and the decoy work and stuff evolved a lot in europe um but the training methodology is not so much and now there's another generation coming up behind them and they're innovating in ways that you didn't expect them to bart malone was somebody that you know uh, bart i don't train technically the way bart sure trains ultimately sure. Yep. but he was an incredible innovator for sure and i admire what, what he did he with the electronic collar was thinking way outside the box oh, yeah. and he started doing a lot of the stuff that he did and and many of the modern kind of uh use of the electronic collar you could credit to to him oh and yeah his, the first person to use you know bungee collars the first person to really in a serious way use low level stimulation to use rewards and stimulation together there are a bunch of that kind of stuff before that before him The collar was primarily the 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 biggest stick, yeah, right. Punishment tool. You used it when you had a behavioral issue that it was intractable to all the normal methodologies, and so I think he won the Belgian Ring Championships Mm. in like 1991 or something like that. And training pretty old school before that, yeah. And then spawned in, in the 90s, he really began to mess with electronic collars in a way that nobody else had ever had. So that's I admire. Oh, yeah. What he's done in the dog world a a ton. Right.
0: Yeah. He he, uh, again, another funny story. Nineteen ninety nine. I'm in a um, farm training place like some German farm and it's a seminar I went to and it's Dr. Helmut Reiser and Bart Ballon working together mm-hmm. at a <laughs> seminar and it's mostly mm-hmm. in German. And, yep. uh, the, you know, so I'm picking up as best I can what's going on. Because when you're speaking dog, you can actually understand, you know, when you're watching the stuff that, uh, uh Dr. Reiser was doing and, uh, what, uh, and that was, you know, really interesting to, to see how that was. So I was, you know, going, Hmm, you know, I, I look at this stuff. This stuff is really unique. Um, I'm, you know, wondering what are they doing how is this happening as i'm trying to do it through the languages watching dogs being manipulated watch the drives happening all of that kind of stuff and uh we get done and i walk over to dr reiser and i was like uh sprechen the english and he was like yes i speak english just fine i was like whoa long story short is we get talking my dad trained him in dentistry and I oh, really, imagine, yeah. So no way, yeah, no so, way. Yes, really? so that was your so.
1: <laughs> taught, taught <laughs> taught helmet riser dentistry. Yeah. Oh taught him some goodness. implant yeah. dentistry wow. stuff.
0: <laughs> and cause he, we, he, you know, we started talking, he's your name and then he's like, yeah, I said, yeah. Um, you know, Oh, my dad's a dentist too. And he's like, who's your dad? And I was telling him and Hey, your dad taught me. So then now he's like, I'm teaching with his son, <laughs> the dog stuff. So <laughs> it's just crazy. Yeah. The dog world and, and things like that. Um, uh, again, those of us that have been around long enough, these names that we're around. I highly recommend people finding, uh, some of the information about individuals like Dr. Reiser and like you said, Bart Ballon, that's, that's, you know, Nipo people know a lot about that now. Um, and then of course, you know, like you said, one of the things I've known Ivan for so long too, you know, he and I met at a field in, I forget where it was at, maybe Holland or he was coming over competing in one of the championships. And, uh, you know, we had, of course, knew each other from the, the discussion group. And then, you know, years later, he moves to Florida. He's about an hour and a half away from where I was uh, in Orlando. He was in Tampa area-ish. And just always maintained our friendship. And like you said, I'd have some crazy conversations with him. You know, we would talk various dog things. And, you know, as I'm building up in detection, um, you know, there's just that knack. So my question to you on detection thing is, what has been Interesting for you about detection, what do you like? What's been you know things about detection that have drawn your attention?
1: So one that and you're actively involved in it now is the detection trainers have finally come to using conditioned reinforcers. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. So for such a long time, uh they were resistant to that. And yes. I, it, it, and there's I, still a
0: resistance quite a bit, I, but, but yeah,
1: I, I I've goofed with detection. It's not, uh, and I kind of understand the process certainly. And I know about training dogs to search and that kind of thing, but it was never my, my focus of interest. Yeah. But every time I went and watched detection trainers and I gave seminars for groups that were doing search and detection work, usually on play skills and things like that, uh, to motivate their dogs. And I left the detection portion of it to them, um, they were so reliant on being able to deliver the reward at source. And you could see all the problems Mm -hmm. that came Mm -hmm. with that. And I'm like that discipline would lend itself beautifully to the use of markers or conditioned reinforcers. It would be perfect. And that world, like many of those worlds, I think partially because a lot of it was connected to law enforcement and military work and those worlds are just slow to evolve. The people of seniority in those worlds that have been there they have a methodology that's worked they don't see the need to change it and until they age out and retire you and another it. generation comes up things don't change that easily it's hard to make changes in those in that culture so it's been they've been sort of slow to catch on to what the rest of the dog world has known for a while yeah and so now you're kind of in the midst of spreading the word on that but that's one of the things that's fascinating and it has all kinds of possible uses like whether you're rewarding at source Mm -hmm. you could have separate markers for rewarding at source versus coming away from odor to get your reward, all of which would expand things. You could have a continuation marker to keep Mm -hmm. the dog locked on source. If you wanted, there's so many ways in which that can expand communication. And so that's fascinating. The other area that's of really interest to me in that world, that the detection world is I hopefully starting to catch on to is. is, um, uh, Proper, what I call cooperative play, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the detection world, uh, like in law enforcement, um, was into possession place play. So they made the dogs crazy for the Kong or whatever. They choked them off of them. They had a dog that we you know climb a tree to get a Kong, you know, yep. get through a concrete wall to get a Kong. But there was so much conflict in the play relationship. Yep. You know, you'd have to get the dog the toy and You'd fight with it for five minutes while you got it back to it. And the dog's all exhausted from the battle. You just had to get the toy back you from it. Got it. Nobody was having any fun. And I'm like, it doesn't have to be like that. I think the idea that that kind of play made independence. So the dog wasn't handler oriented was their rationale for yeah. letting it continue.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But that's just a lack of kind of understanding that you can have cooperative play and independent searching in the same dog. Right. And that kind of thing. And then the, the final thing maybe is that people are using food really well in detection right yep. and that was taboo as all get out oh, for a long man. time like well if you're using food then the dog's going to go be looking for food out there and they're <laughs> you're going to do a search somewhere and the dog's going to want to eat food instead of search and you're like well we <laughs> we, we 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 do it in other uh, dog training avenues without any issues why would you not have a problem in there so that's caught on too and it's and there's lots of innovation happening there
0: man you hit so many points that have always been such the big debates in our detection dog world. Um, So I'll start off with the condition reinforcer part of it. Um, I honestly, you were my motivator to pull that into detection. Um, and I think I was telling you the story on one of the other phone calls we had recently, but at that time I was dating somebody from sea world and she was watching detection and she was asking me the question, like, why aren't you, you, why do you have to do what you're doing? You're, you know, the dog knows you're walking you behind it. The yeah, exactly. <laughs> so she calls me out for that. I had just been watching videos from you and, uh, And I obviously at that point was on the train of using the verbal condition reinforcer, using yes for a lot of things I was doing. So I was like, okay. So I started applying that to the detection and I had magnificent results. I had a brand new dog, eight month old Malinois, that was going to be my next police dog. So I was using that with him and saw dramatic results. And I was like, man, a lot of those things that you brought up, that was dealing with before with all the conflict of, rewarding at source and the tells because we were giving all these other inconsistent condition reinforcers our body language oh, or wherever sure. yeah so all of those were hear, causing. they can hear
1: your feet stop moving or mm-hmm, like
0: all of it and <laughs> yeah. and it was so you know this was in 2002 11, 12, when I, I think it was one of your first videos came out with Ed. And um, that's where I was utilizing what I was watching in your obedient stuff and bringing it over to the Texas stuff. And people looked at me like I had a third eye on my forehead because they were like, <laughs> you're making the dog leave odor. What are you doing? You can't do that. Um, you're making, you're gonna, your dog's going to be messed up. And of course there's the, you know, the, one of the biggest vendors in the United States, you know, is always pay at source. And I had learned that system, but I also went through the issues that come with that. All those, like we talked about the tells from the handler, the inconsistencies. And this was one of the first times where I wasn't having those common issues. My dog had a better understanding. I've also learned and evolved even further since then that I also know that sometimes, and this is something you could speak about, when using a condition reinforcer sometimes certain behaviors will happen in a dog especially as they're anticipating while they're in that coiled spring kind of mode so they've found Mm -hmm. odor they're locked in there um things like licking behaviors um uh you know yeah so i'll let you kind of go on that way
1: especially if if you're using food and stuff like that to reward dogs too for sure you're going to get classically conditioned you know, mm-hmm. anticipatory behaviors connected to those as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I so and I suppose like from, I it would depend on obviously the picture you're trying to create, mm-hmm. right? So again, there, if I'm deploying bomb dogs in the field mm-hmm. in somewhere, then the, like obviously rewarding at source is not an option. Correct. Right. Yep. It, when there's, you can do it in training, but you can't do it in deployment. And what training system is a good training system where you can't actually reinforce the dog properly in the field yep. kind of thing and so some of that that stuff so it would, i would say it would depend on the picture you we're trying to create uh, whether some of those um anticipatory classically conditioned responses you see from dogs like you click they lick lip or they mm. you know they freeze up or like in, in anticipation, hold their breath, mm-hmm. you know, their mouth closes, like mm-hmm. in, all those, whether you would want to use that as a tell, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Or yep. whether you would want to capture that and keep it, or whether it's, you know, something you wouldn't, and you can reinforce it in a different way to make that go away too.
0: One of the, I would say the arguments that get brought, which is surprising sometimes, but in the sport detection dog world, you would figure condition reinforcers would have been widely accepted, but back to the point you made a second ago, which is, That program started with lots of trainers from the law enforcement segment that had retired and brought over to the sport world some of those habits or the information that they believed over there. And one common argument is, well, if you're using a condition, reinforcer, marker, I'm sorry, clicker, word, whatever, you don't know for sure what you are uh, marking for. and. Uh I I can see and understand at times, yes, I get that point of view and I can relate to it. However, and sometimes in the scheme, bigger scheme of things, all these other problems are coming because I'm not doing that is more detrimental than just breaking down my training, you know, schedule for that moment or that evolution down to, hey, the only thing here is this odor and whatever container it might be in. And if Uh I'm concerned that the dog was, you know, focusing in on either the container or some other condition, I can just proof that in the very next step we get to. And I, I think that gets lost sometimes, but the condition reinforcer is super powerful. It's, you know, what I try to get people to understand, and I'll let you expand upon this by having that clarity of them knowing what the conditions are, they perform better than trying to guess what the antecedent or condition will be.
1: So 100%. And then, and then also, I think a huge part of if it's efficacy is the fact that you can defer primary reward significantly. If you have a dog that's well trained with a conditioned reinforcer, then the timeliness of the primary reward is no longer an issue. Yeah. So it allows you to be further away, oh, it yeah. allows you to be moving away from the dog with your back to him. It allows you all kinds of things there, which you can't have when you're trying to deliver rewards at source, mm-hmm. you have to be within a certain distance. You have to be at a certain angle. You have to be ready to do it. There's all the classic tells that we talk about. Yeah, right? yep. And so that ability to defer rewards really important. And, and yes, it's like anything you do, you still have to watch criteria. Yep. Right, so if I my timing isn't good and I'm not paying attention to my criteria, training traditionally, I'm going to lift, pull back to throw it. The dog's going to start to turn his head, and I'm going to throw it when he's looking away from odor too. I'm going to have the same kinds of problems, right? And so that the argument that you can't really see exactly what the dog's doing, you learn to to tell body language cues, all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. ahead of it, so you can tell when the dog's really in odor and when they're not and all of that, but it's just maintaining good criteria. If mm-hmm. you click at the wrong time or mark at the wrong time, you're going to get bad results the same way as if you were trying to deliver a, a yep. physical reward and you're off a little bit. Like,
0: My joke is yeah. shitty training is shitty training. No matter what it is you do, if you do it crappy, it's going to come out crappy too. So, yeah. um, you yeah. know, cause that was one of the arguments that was brought up. And well. I feel,
1: and, and, and I'm not certain cause you and I haven't, haven't gone into the nuts and bolts of all the stuff you're doing at this point, but certainly I, I could have a marker like a duration marker that mm. I could give the dog when I was gonna bring reward. Correct. To source too, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, you're in it. There you go. I can tell them they're right, just like we would use a good marker or something like that. And then I could bring the reward directly to them. And then mm-hmm. I could have another one that says, you get to peel off of it to come get your reward. Yep. yep. Right. Yep. You could do all of those things. You can have. That's the beauty of conditioned reinforcers as well. I can build a conditioned reinforcer that predicts reward for the dog. Classically conditioned, it becomes a reinforcement but I can also have multiples that give the dog different information about where the reward's going to be placed. Yep. Right. We do it all the time in the sport work. Yeah. One release to remote reward, one to rewards with me. I could have one for biting rewards. I could have one for toy rewards. I mean, you can have a significantly more elaborate communication system than lots of people do. Right. And so mm-hmm. the, the possible uses get, pretty endless like you could you can give the dog a lot of different information if you're willing to invest the time
0: correct and, and that's one of the things so i, I you know and sarah bruski and i had this conversation when i was did a seminar for her it was we called it or she coined it even more so the room service marker which meant hey yeah. i'm bringing the reward to you stay here Yep. we will come to you and bring the reward or this is the release marker meaning come back to me and we'll engage you over here having the ability to do both is is very important and that was one of the things on the, a recent podcast I did with uh, my, that gentleman, Tobias, I was talking about, um, was we talked about the importance of by always having it one way, whether it was always using a marker or only always using direct reward paying at source, created limitations. There was, mm-hmm. it, the, you're a better trainer or you're a better handler when you have multiple ways to solve the detection problem having the ability to come up to the dog if I need to, having the ability to bring the dog back to me if I need to, but the dog understanding all of these things. And it doesn't truly require a ton more investment than we're already doing, considering if a lot of your training time was problem-solving all the other errors that were created sure. by the lack of communication or the clarity of communication.
1: Mm-hmm. And just because you're using, I think you hit it, just because you're using conditioned reinforcers does not preclude paying at source too. Right. Yep, yep. So I can have one that says, wait there, I'll bring it to you. I can have one that says, come away to it. And then I can have another one and I can make that mark and then bam and yep. pay at source. Yep. Right. So that when I see hear this sound, they're expecting to be paid at source and they hear the other, they're patiently waiting for me to bring it there or to them. And another says, all right, peel off, you come get it with me. Yeah, Like, and so you could, then if you felt like, Oh, you know what, this dog would benefit from a little more pay at source. Mm-hmm. You built that into your communication as well. There's no there's no reason not to, right? Yeah, no. It, it's, we, do, we do exactly the same things in obedience. In obedience, it's exactly the same thing. I, I want to. We use what we call reward placement, which is pay at source. Yep. Right. Yep. Extensively to help control behavior, to, to structure it in the beginning, and to control it. And then we have a whole series of other releases. And so then once you get start wanting to get the rewards out of sight, yeah. And you, you, it's no longer efficient to place the reward where you want we've constructed a communication system where we don't have to all the markers now allow yes. us to mm-hmm. defer reward mm-hmm. and, and still maintain the behavior that we may have created through reward placement or pay at source yep. in, in detection terms. Right. Yeah. So,
0: no, that's it, And it's, we are, like I said, the community as a whole has changed a lot when it has come to using condition reinforcers. Like I said, you know, uh, 10 years ago or so it was really taboo. Now I would say probably about, I would, it's a, again huge impact that you have had with spreading that word and people understanding it better and other aspects of of uh, their dog work, um, but it, we were probably if I take a wild guess forty ish percent we're not quite halfway there yet, but that's still a significant leap from ten yeah. years ago, and and
1: good, and good for you you're at the the tip of the spear on this you're out there. Spreading the good word, right? Like <laughs> do my like, best.
0: <laughs> I take a lot of shots fired on this stuff, but <laughs> I do the best I can. And don't but no, that crap. Just yeah,
1: do, do your good dog training. It'll yeah, all fall, it'll fall into place. Yeah,
0: no, and 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 you know, my goal has always been just share good information, and and that's all I really try to do. And um, the biggest thing is be flexible, and just like we talked about, having those multiple markers creates more flexibility and a better community relationship with your dog. The the more that the dog can stop guessing, the better it's going to perform because it's not trying to constantly, you know, figure out what you're doing, not trying to constantly read you. Are you doing this? What's your tell? And my joke is because I live out here in Las Vegas, quit playing poker with your cards facing your dog. You know, you're giving all of these tell you are the worst (laughs) poker player ever when it comes to detection because your dog is just reading you like crazy. So the, you know, and that was, you know, we can talk about the condition reinforces as one aspect. Another one that you brought up is the cooperative play and how mm-hmm. important, whether you're using food, whether you're using a toy, um, we'll go with, I'll go with toy first, and then we'll switch over to food and talk about that in a second. But the mm-hmm. toy part, having that developed relationship of how to play, how to maintain mm-hmm. arousal levels, because... One of the biggest things that I know you've seen it in detection communities are spin this dog up, get him really hyped. You show him a toy, you run over there, you act like you're hiding it here and there. and You do all this, you know, stuff that stimulates the dog. And then you say, go find it. And then the dog takes off full speed, runs around like a maniac looking for their odor item. The odor item is the only strong smell in that space. So they, they hit it and then you're telling him, oh, you no put the brakes on. Now I want you to be completely calm, completely still, yeah. not do anything. And these conflicts happen. So one of the things I know that you can really expand upon is the importance of teaching play, but play that's managed with arousal levels and how to release this reward item, whatever toy it is, to the handler to keep that relationship. So I'll let you expand on that.
1: Yeah. So, so the, the way I look at it is many aspects of dog training are the same. That you don't necessarily want the dog at the highest state of possible arousal when you're teaching new tasks to them, right? Mm -hmm. You need a minimum level of arousal to get the dog invested in the process. Mm -hmm. But if I whip my dog up really high and then try to teach them how to let go or how to bring something back Mm -hmm. or how to go search and then not, you know, rip the door Mm -hmm. the drawers off the hinges and not, you know blow everything out of the well water, there's an arousal level that's appropriate for teaching a skill, right? And so we kind of do the same thing with play. Yes, I need to pump you up a little in the beginning to get you interested in playing. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm teasing you with toys, we use restraint, we use all the typical tools that we would use to develop drive. But before we get out of hand, we start the rulemaking process, right? And the rulemaking process is should be, if I do it properly, free of lots of conflict right because i haven't overbuilt the dog so i don't have to use so much pressure mm-hmm. to make the rules mm-hmm. and the dog learns that the rules are just a part of the game like the rules aren't something to be avoided you let go to get the toy back again you let go mm-hmm. to get the toy back again and if i do that at the right state of arousal and at the right point in the dog's development then it's really pretty easy where we run into tro- trouble trouble mm-hmm. is I made a dog crazy because I want him to be really into his toy because I really want him to search for this. And he's now 12, 14, 18 months old and he's gone berserk for the thing. And now, Oh, by the way, bring it back to me. And a lot of the things that we do to make drive in the beginning are possession based, right? I tease you on a, you're on a harness. I'm teasing you up. You get frustrated. You get it. Then I lift you up and let you hold it. And when you drop it, I snatch it away. There are these things that we do. And And a little bit of that's a, Good thing. Sure. It does make the dog into it. They, they get on board, but people just radically overdo that. And they don't think about play as something like, hey, this is a game we're doing together. And if you bring those rules in at the right time and you, the dog starts to go, oh, I see. Bringing it back to you is fun. Yeah. Oh, I, I see letting go. It's just an opportunity for me to restart the circle again. and I get it back again. I let go and I get it back again and I let go. And then we go back into searching. And then once I have that structure, mm-hmm. I can start to wind you up more if I want to. And then I would assume in search work, you would want to bring the arousal down in the beginning because you don't need them at max arousal. No we are not right. going to have to search a giant warehouse and climb things to start with. It's going to be easy. There's going to be a box right there. There's going to be, you know, a couple of drawers. It's got, mm-hmm. however you're starting it, it's it's not complicated. So I don't need you up here. So why don't we bring you down here, show you the concept, you get the concept Then we crank it up. Yeah. Cause yeah, you'll want that kind of motivation when the dogs have to do long, hard searches, but not when you're teaching a fundamental skill. Yep. It'd be like whipping your dog up as high as you can get them and then trying to teach him to lay down, you know, it's all going to be, a hassle (laughs) yeah no for
0: sure and then there's there's an art to teaching play and uh, that's one of the things you're extremely good at is teaching that almost i would call it like a linear motion going left going right following the hand initially let's say with Mm -hmm. food uh doing very similar games with the toy but it also bleeds into that impulse control where we can start teaching them that this activation at this right level is part of then Maintaining your composure, you know, that impulse control, Mm -hmm. then being you know released with a condition reinforcer to engage. Talk a little bit about the the process that's involved, or the important things to think of when you're building that play development to bleed into your impulse control slash later on your indication.
1: Absolutely. So what we what I look for is the the basics of play, and you you hit on something that we do a lot of, which is we do what we call dynamic food work, right, Mm -hmm. which we do for a couple of different reasons and dynamic food work is I'm basically moving the food around like it's a toy, right? Mm -hmm. You're chasing food in my hand. Mm -hmm. I'm throwing food and running the other direction. There are things that we do. And we are basically treating a piece of food as if it were a toy. And the dogs learn a couple of things while doing this, this food work. One, um, they learn targeting, right? Which is a part of good play. They learn to see a target, hit a target, And it's a little more forgiving than teaching targeting on a toy when a dog's a little higher. And so they learn some skills there. The handlers learn good mechanics for presentations and footwork and things that will carry over to good cooperative play with toys. And then the dog is into it, right? Mm -hmm. But not quite as high as they would be for a toy. So we can start what we call capping exercises, right? And capping exercises for anyone that's not familiar is the dog going from an active to a contained state, right? And much of our working dog disciplines are full of different capped behaviors. And a search dog is like a a good detection dog is actively searching and uh, bam, Mm -hmm. they go from an active state to a contained state. Right. And so traditionally those contained states in detection too, and everything else were taught with pressure. Yeah. Right. They got a dog really wanting something and Mm -hmm. then they made them obedient. Yep right? And there was conflict involved in that. I had to put pressure on them. Then maybe they didn't want to search or they didn't want to do the thing. So right away, I want to teach capping kind of as an interruption on the way to get something that allows you to get it. So while I'm doing food work, I can have you chasing food and getting it, chasing food and getting it in my hand, chasing food and getting it, then chasing food and you miss it. And then when I pull it away, they shoot past me, just like you'd get a miss with a toy. And as they turn around, I say down or sit. And I can lure them and it's easier. They're not quite as crazy as they are for a toy. They cap, and then I can release them. And right away, they begin to learn little short, brief interruptions in the game we're playing, right? But they're down at a manageable arousal level with food. They're easier to manipulate. And then that can transfer over to toys. As they get better, we do the same kinds of games with toys. And the dogs learn to contain themselves without a lot of aversive control. I don't really need much. You don't get this if you don't sit, so it's sure. no big deal. I don't have to fight with you over it. I don't have to yank on you or any of those things. And the other thing is that for that work, the food work makes a nice kind of handler and dog foundation mm-hmm. for translating into play. But then also for dogs that wind up not being good players, which is now increasingly, there are dogs that don't have to be crazy toy dogs to be good detection dogs yep, now, right? Correct. That was in the past. It yes. was like your dog had to be a, a toy nut. Now people are doing really innovative stuff with food and very mm. good search dogs with food. Oh yeah. Um, and so then you'll get more mileage from your food work. Yep. So it, it, if it, you are going to use food, then you'll get. you can create these more dynamic reward systems with food. So you'll get better mileage than just handing your dog pieces of food for, for searching. Right. And yeah. so it, it has a lot of potential values.
0: Yeah. No, in, it really helps again with that arousal state and the repetitions you can get, you know, one of the things I share is that I may do food rep one rep two, but then end with jackpot being uh, a toy item or the highest value food item or things of that nature. Um, the, flip side to this thing though. So there's a lot who are in the sport world and they don't get the dogs that have that really high motivation for a toy. So they use food, but even if it's food, a lot of these dogs that are mostly pet dogs, um, they, the handlers in training struggle, um, with dealing with lower motivation. So how would you address working with somebody whose dog, um, may not be as motivated. My little joke I use when I'm working with them is, of course... I control the food and instead of using the word mm-hmm. deprivation, I just use a new millennial <laughs> term called intermittent fasting. We just do intermittent fasting with your dogs.
1: And, I like it. Yeah, and, I'm going to borrow it. Yes. And, 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 I'm, and still, it, I'm still in the aversive deprivation discussion. No, no, so no. I'm, no. Stealing, yes. I'm stealing that. That's good. Intermittent, intermittent fasting. fasting. They totally get it. They get
0: behind it. They have no problem with it. They'll probably jump in with themselves. I'm going to do some intermittent fasting with myself, my dog. So yes. yeah. So but go ahead and explain a little bit about how, you know, what can you do with a dog who's not as motivated as others?
1: So when we talk about food motivation, like, so if you have a dog that's not going to play with toys, right. And, and you're going to be using food in a lot of civilian sport detection stuff, they're using food. Um, And so there are the things you said, Uh, one, first off is make sure your dog is at a fit weight. Right. Mm -hmm. So, which don't try to just intermittent fast right away. Yeah. <laughs> but put them on a diet, increase their exercise, get them down to proper weight, right? So yep. in companion dogs, I'm sure you encounter it all the yep. time. Lots of them are heavier than they should oh, be. Yeah. So get them down to appropriate weight and magically a significant portion of them are suddenly motivated for our food. Mm-hmm. The next is intermittent fasting. Yep. What yep. I would call deprivation. Yep. That's <laughs> old school. Come on. No. <laughs> <laughs> the next, the next is a quality of reward. You're going to experiment with different types of food and see if you find something that motivates them that's palatable. And and then a quantity or size. Like, so sometimes people are saying, I want to use this and they don't want the dog to get full. So they're using pieces that are too small to be meaningfully reinforcing to a dog. And then the final for me is dynamics. And I invest a fair bit. We invest a fair bit in dynamic food games. So we have the food chase work that's in my hands. I do that more for people that are gonna to wanna to play with their dogs because it's equal parts um, motivating for the dog and mm-hmm. mechanical skills for the handler. Um, if I have other people, then we do a lot of food throw games. We have a game we call food throw recall, okay. right? Where I take a piece of food as if it was a toy and I roll it along the floor. And the dog chases it as they're grabbing and I'm running the other direction and calling them and they come running back and I feed them, feed them, feed them. And then I throw a piece along the floor and I run. And that becomes kind of a game. The dogs love it. It's like chasing a ball and I can go throw back, throw back, throw back. And so for people that physically aren't going to be running and having their dog leap in the air for food out of their hands, that game, lots of dogs get really into that. And so we play with dynamics. We've do, we've even done gone so far as to do some restraint work with food. Like we do with toys, yep. put dogs on harnesses and have people hold them back, tease them, like let them drag forward and let them go as you're running with their food and then toss a piece of food in front of them. Yep. The same way that we use frustration to make motivation for toy play. You can do some of that with, with food work as well. And so those are the c- kind of key ways we try to control it.
0: Yeah. See, Lynn, let's go into the quality of, uh, versus quantity aspect. Um, because obviously sometimes we're dealing with dogs that aren't as motivated. You're not going to get the same amount of repetitions out of it. Um, how important is it and what are some things to consider when you're trying to get a good quality session with a dog who we know our window of time is short when it comes to motivation?
1: Yeah. So I, I think the big thing is for me in all dog training, it's not, it's not specifically the detection you are much better off with significantly fewer, what I call committed, invested repetitions from the dog than a whole bunch of half-assed ones. So if you have a dog with low motivation, the the general idea is do lots of short sessions. Um, But if I do lots of short sessions, the short's good. The short session, the dog doesn't get completely satiated. Mm -hmm. You're ending before they want to be. But if I do lots of short sessions, the dog also doesn't get really hungry in between. So one of the things that is necessary sometimes is larger breaks between sessions for the less motivated dogs. So they have a chance to recharge, right. To regain their motivation when you're using food, right. Mm. In those senses. And so be very wary of the length of your sessions and getting what I call empty repetitions or these kind of going through the motions, uncommitted repetitions, you're wasting food drive and energy on repetitions the dog doesn't care enough about to make a strong impression yeah and i don't need a whole lot of repetitions if the dog's really invested and so it, it may feel like hey i'm not training enough yeah but frequently you're way more productive if you do that fewer reps bigger breaks so the dog gets hungry and gets back to it and they're fresh and then the other thing is don't work the same thing too much what are the things that we do with highly motivated dogs is we'll drill them a bunch of times on the same skill, right? Yep. And if my dog's really motivated, they support all that drilling and certainly the repetition kind of solidifies the lesson for them. But for other dogs, they start to get bored with it a little bit, mm-hmm. right? And so mix it up a little, change up what you're doing. Like if you worked on this kind of problem a little bit, leave it alone for a few days and come back to it later and do some other stuff with the dog. And then the dog's kind of jack to get back to it like oh yeah this again it's fun and there are some actually some studies now that that, um, that show that dogs learn and become fluent in certain tasks with fewer overall repetitions if there are bigger breaks between them right yep. if you don't work the same thing every day yep. kind of thing and that's that's hard. i think it's harder for dog trainers you know you think like oh gosh i haven't trained in 2 days yep. like i haven't done this and Oh, I'm falling behind. That mm-hmm. other guy over there is training three times a day, every day, right? And there's a point at which you're not training enough, certainly, but that can really make a difference with dogs that are less motivated. You have to maximize the reps that you get so they need to be really invested repetitions
0: yeah you're hitting a lot of things i talk about in canine cognition so uh that study of you know mm-hmm. the, the dogs that were trained once a week versus the ones that were trained once a day and mm-hmm. how the dogs that were trained once a week outperformed many tasks as opposed to the once a day um and i get into that because like you brought up a second ago memory plays a role and if you know that the dog in front of you is already a stronger memory dog than a stronger inference dog you just brought up the main point that comes up in these discussions that I have is the dog is using memory. It's not, there's nothing really super motivating about it anymore. It's just using what I call memory before nose. So mm-hmm. it's just going to repeat the action because it's memory. You know, there's not really searching involved right now. I'm just doing this motion because yep. you've always done it. Uh, the flip side to that is those inference dogs, the ones you just said a second ago, but you have to change it up because they've used you too as information. And if you are repetitive in that aspect, they're not gaining anything anymore because the inference mm-hmm. came from you, not from what it is that you're training. So it, it's really, you know, you and I haven't even had conversations yet about cognition and the stuff that, mm-hmm. you know, I've been yeah. going around. Big world. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, it changed. That was one of my life changing things too when it came to dog stuff. But um, yeah, the the cognitive aspect of knowing that dog in front of you hits the points that we're talking about, which is how to get the most out of your training session. And, and until I know about my dog and knowing if my dog's a high memory dog or a high inference dog or potentially high in both, um, Mm -hmm. sets my training plan in motion. And that guides me into, like we talked about, not only the motivational aspect, what is my dog motivation level, how, how. Do I go about my plan for this training session? Because this memory dog, if I do this more than two times, it's going to start going, oh, this is a memory exercise and not, you know, being working on an indication or working on an odor. Um, But that inference dog, again, if I'm doing these certain movements a certain way, the dog is waiting for those cues because this is the inference it made to solve that problem. So it's, it's really cool because this goes into the next one, which is stress. Stress and learning, and uh, again, these are things I, I know we both hold near and dear to our heart. Is the understanding, you know, stress isn't always about compulsion. Stress comes from a lot of other oh, yeah. things. So, oh, yeah, I'll let you kind of just hit some high points about being, you know, somebody that needs to understand what stress does to dogs and the learning aspects.
1: And I, I think it's a it's a really big subject because we have a tendency to think of stress as universally bad. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. And of course it's not necessarily right. There's the level of stress that actually improves performance, sure. right. That makes concentration and that stress can be not like I'm afraid, but I'm a little mm-hmm. frustrated mm-hmm. and I want to figure this out. And there's and neurologically and chemically that's stress. Like there are the, yep. these sorts of things. And there's an amount of kind of even anxiety that, can improve performance. You don't wanna be under constant stress for extended periods of time. That's where we begin to have health problems, but there's a level of stress that's problematic and there's a level of stress that's actually kind of, it will enhance performance to some degree. And then stress doesn't just, as you said, come from aversives. It comes from not being able to solve a problem, Mm -hmm. right? So some of the purely reward-based trainers who are trying not to, to guide their dogs in their training for instance doing pure free shaping right they're giving the dog half of the information right yeah they're not telling like playing a hot and cold game with Mm -hmm. only hot or (laughs) with only hot right (laughs) in that sense and lots of dogs get frustrated and that the stress manifests in stopping working it doesn't manifest in, in traditional like fear-based behavior, the things we'd think of as aversive stress does, but those dogs are are stressed as well. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that um, in detection work, that if I, I want to set up problems so the dog is challenged, right, mm-hmm. but are successful, so they get to be persistent when they stress, if I don't set my problems up correctly and mm-hmm. don't manage their stress, they can be stressed by thinking, not, not not understanding what you're trying to communicate to them or anticipating reward and not getting it, right, at a certain point. All yep. those things can contribute to stress, sometimes positively. So sometimes that frustration and stress positively impacts the dog, the dog tries harder. Yep. It looks like, I really want this, I didn't get it mm-hmm. when I thought I was gonna mm-hmm. get it. And they come back around and they try harder. And other times they shut down and avoid, like you'll get dogs that are like avoidant. Yep. And sometimes it's just been, they've been wrong And, and you haven't punished them per se, other Mm -hmm. than they've been wrong and you pulled them off, they did get a reward. And now they're becoming avoidant as if you'd have been corrected. So there's a, a whole bunch of that stuff that, and I think it's true in all of our dog training disciplines. When we're talking about obedience, it's the same. There's a level of stress that's appropriate. You wouldn't want to be under it all the time, but when you're working, it can help. We put pressure on ourselves over things, our tasks in our life. And that motivates us and moves us forward and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. And then there's a point at which we begin to get ulcers and heart attacks. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Absolutely. Don't want to come out of our house and all that stuff.
0: There was was a video I'd watched and you you hit a topic that wasn't even related to detection in what you were speaking about. And that was the importance or we sometimes inadvertently create perseverance in a dog on something we don't want. So the example I'm going to give you is a dog that has gone to a non-target odor and it's alerting and it's, -hmm. it's told you it's here, but it's not the odor we want. Um, The common method in most times this is okay is to wait the dog out to make a better decision. However, Mm -hmm. like you brought up in the video, when you do this, sometimes you're actually, causing more of a problem you're creating longer perseverance um we, we I know you kind of hit on it having that I would say no reward marker or you know hey i uh, will mm-hmm. keep going talk a little bit about that and how you would employ that in that situation I just gave you
1: yeah so the we see a lot of this kind of thing uh in in um sport work and things where dogs are making a bad choice and they're getting frustrated And you want to wait them out until they offer another behavior and they start to bark or do stuff like that right and they get some kind of stress relief and satisfaction from that behavior and so then when they when things get a little unclear or they're not getting rewarded fast enough you start to get a bunch of unwanted behavior right whether the dog's barking or doing other stuff and if you let them continue that becomes their go-to way of handling lack of clarity or, yep. or frustration or whatever that is. And so you could use, the, and, and in a detection world, it's kind of, and there, you have to be careful, it's kind of taboo to tell the dog they're wrong, yeah. right? Yeah, Like you stay out of it, right? And it's true if I'm intervening when a dog's searching, and they're going somewhere they're not supposed to go, and I say no, and they're heading over towards somewhere they're supposed to go, and I'm saying good, then they go, oh, I'll just listen to you. I don't Mm -hmm. don't need to search. I'll just go, is this it? You said no. Is this it? You said no. Is this (laughs) it? You said no, right? That's it? Okay, great. And they're not searching anymore. But if you use it infrequently on a dog, you've built good searching in the dog. You think the dog understands the task, and they stop, and then there's no problem. You're going, "Uh uh-uh, let's go search. Yeah. Like tell them you, you, you marking that that's, that's incorrect. Yeah. Just don't overdo it and then get them back into, into searching again, have a, a prompt to go on. So I, I like, because I'm not training detection dogs a whole bunch uh, uh, myself and I, I hang around it, but I would, I would absolutely keep that in my back pocket as, as a tool to resolve some of those problems. So I feel a dog is consistently alerting on a non-target odor or something like that. and, they just need some help to realize that's not what uh, yeah. you think it is. Yep. Right. And as long as you don't over-involve yourself in the process too often, then I see no problem with that working really well. It doesn't all the other aspects of dog training. So why wouldn't it there too? Correct. And, uh, and, and you know, I, we have the same thing, right. You sent discrimination exercises for some of the sports that we do and things like that, which are not complicated scenting problems, but you, the, the general wisdom is you stay the hell out of it yeah let them figure it out as much Mm -hmm. as you can Mm -hmm. but but there comes a point where i think my dog knows it they know the discrimination they're doing it and when they make a bad choice i let them know it's a bad choice yep like no you got to do that again and Mm -hmm. if i've done the foundation work properly when i tell them they took they picked the wrong one right yep and the next time universally they get it the next time
0: yep now would you it took that re-
1: information and they went aha you're right i wasn't concentrating whatever it's going to be and they go back and they get the right one.
0: Now would you in that let's say creating that signal that that didn't work would you do the signal say hey nope not right would you reset or would you I'll keep them i know this would probably be situational dependent but if you're in let's say yeah. a beginning
1: more I, beginning. I I would i would want them to get to the the appropriate odor target odor as quickly as possible after i told them they were wrong. Okay. So if I know the target order's coming up close yeah. after where they, they did, then I might say, no, search, search, and push them on. And they go on and they, hopefully they get target odor. If I have to bring them back to that spot, if they overshot the target odor, I might reset them. Sure. Right. And if they didn't overshot that and they hit a non-target odor, then I might reset them from the beginning, but I would want them to be relatively successful. I wouldn't want them to come back here and stop Correct. Again and come back here and stop again. So yeah. It would be a little bit about, in my mind, just thinking about it how that problem was set up.
0: Yep, that's what like I was where I was getting to is yeah. It, it there's that risk of if you were to reset, which is a common option that a lot of trainers and detection go to. Oh, let's just reset, and, and resetting could be right, um, mm-hmm. but in some cases, like we're bringing up now, if that item is right there, we might be just in their mind resetting them. Oh, go do that again or whatever that mm-hmm. happens, which is leads me to this last question here, which is. Changing variables and understanding the process of that successive approximation, going through a lot of times we think it's a very simple process, and it's really ten steps in one to the dog, and a lot of things happen. Um, speak about the importance of changing variables and some key things that you need to do if you change a variable, lowering criteria, etc., as you as you go through mm-hmm. that.
1: You hit it there. So, one is I don't want to change too many variables at the same time, right? So, it's important. I've got a foundation skill in the dog, and it's time to introduce difficulty. Like one of the big mistakes in all aspects of dog training is somebody stays at a foundation step too long. They don't push the dog forward, and the dog thinks this is as hard as it gets or this is my job. And then you add complexity and they're stuck, right? Yeah. I don't want their yep. behavior to become habitual, but I have a solid foundation skill and it's time to make it harder change it up in some fashion and so i, I try to change one variable at a time so like if i was going to go practice in a new location i might use the and i was I had been using boxes and maybe some other stuff in my home location i might go back to the, the piece of equipment they were best at you know whatever that was going to be just thinking out loud there um, So don't change a bunch of variables at a time. Also, if you if you notice that the dog is um, not behaving like they normally do Mm -hmm. in a new environment or around a difficult problem, then be ready to lower your criteria. Maybe be ready to pay on behavior chain before they get locked in. Don't wait for a final response or, you know, go back to pay on odor or whatever it's going to be. Just be ready to scale back your criteria in some fashion to make sure the dog's successful in those early things. Don't leave them to flounder. It's a common problem in obedience work where people have their dog performing at a certain level where they practice and train regularly. They say they want to go mm-hmm. practice obedience at a new field and they expect the same performance from their dog. And of course the dog doesn't. So they either don't reward the dog as much or begin to punish the dog. And now the dog has a bad association with new places or like, and so you want them to be successful when you first challenge them in that way. Yep. So I think you, you hit on it.
0: What um, when it comes to then like you, you, the same problem exists. Obviously I see it on the detection side frequently, just like you said, no obedience when they go to a new place and they're like, Oh, I, I expect this to work. Why is it not working? There's like you said, a, n- a number of things that, the dog wasn't ready for. These variables were too many Uh, new distractions that are there, smells and everything else. Um, Handler's nervousness is a major contributor to a lot of uh, aspects of, of issues that go into genetics. Genetics.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like we, we talk about all the time in the competition dog world, there are club dogs and there are national international level dogs, right? Mm -hmm. You can have the best training in the world and, one dog's going to be limited. They'll always have a little difficulty when they go someplace they're not familiar with. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so we can do our best to prepare them for that. But there's one dog, if you go to a new location to practice three or four times, they're great there. Yep. But going cold into a brand new location. Maybe they're not that kind of dog, right? Yeah. That, that happens, right? We all discover that sometimes to our chagrin when we've invested a lot oh, of time yeah. in getting a dog and oh, figured yeah. out that it doesn't travel well, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Even
0: though... You're like, oh. So, <sighs> yeah. Yeah, no, and, and we, should, we could go down all other wormholes with genetics when it comes to uh, what the dogs were designed to do and they're trying to do detection. Uh, I'll hit, just hit top ones just so people can understand. It's, you know, you got, I work now with a lot of sporting breeds. So from this past couple of years has been pointers. I'm now doing a lot of spaniels and these dogs are designed to be flushers. You know, they're to flush the bird and that style of using their nose is very active, really fast mm-hmm. running around. Ex- quartering, yep. Yeah. <laughs> heavy quartering, all that kind of stuff imagine when you put that on a leash and you're trying to manage what they were trying to do genetically, their brain's telling them, okay, I know what I'm looking for is out here. Wow. Off we go. And oh, right. Yeah. You hang on for your dear life and hope for the best. Um, and then you take their herding breeds like the malls and shepherds and so forth. Mm-hmm. And they have a visual component. And mm-hmm. back to when they, I talked about earlier, the tease ups that, we were doing in in certain ways of training that triggered a whole other genetic aspect that happens and then turns into biting at odor biting at source Mm -hmm. and all these things Mm -hmm. and then we go into compulsion methods to make them stop doing that and then that's happening at it's just you so understanding the genetics and applying that is just another little linchpin or key into being successful with your dogs you can't train them all the same you have to understand
1: absolutely not absolutely and and then recognizing their 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 limitations as well right so you can have a dog that's got a fantastic nose and is really motivated but they have environmental issues like they're just going to be uncomfortable in clean closed spaces or maybe they don't like loud noises and you have to search in a factory where there's machines going or like there's so many layers of that stuff and so when you're developing a dog, you want to expose them to as many things as possible, but you want to try to make them successful. So when we talked about ways in which you, you do that, you make it easier for them when you're changing those variables, but also you, you have to use that diagnostically to kind of recognize what that dog's limitations are. That dog may be great searching outdoors, but it's not going to be okay indoors. Yeah. Right? And, and and that's a hard thing to to sell people on the fact that you know we as dog trainers like to think, hey, if I do my job right, then yeah, I should be able to yeah. do all of this with any dog that that <laughs> has reasonable interest. But that's you run into those kinds of limitations all the time.
0: Oh yeah, no doubt about it. And
1: not not getting frustrated with the dog over that kind of stuff ultimately, right? Yeah, because. That's, that's not in their control Uh and and people get pissed off because the dog has that stuff. They get really down on the dog and it's not, that's not the dog's fault.
0: No. And our emotions come out and there was a study, I don't know if you saw it, there's, if you saw that, uh, there's an episode on Netflix under the, the series explained. And it's for those who are listening, season three, episode five, they go into dogs and understanding dogs. So they have Dr. Cindy Otto on there and Clive Wynn and a lot of them. And there was a one segment in there. They go into how the dogs have empathy. So they present dogs with odor of people stressed and odor of people happy. And then the people within their room aren't doing anything. There's there's a little scent sample in the room. The dog comes in and it shows when the dog comes in and sniffs the stress, you know, hormone. The dogs, like, seek shelter under a chair. They're avoiding the people altogether, all of these things. And then there's the happy hormone, let's call it that. You know, the, 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 the human odor was uh, – or scent was – person was happy and relaxed. The dogs engage automatically. Whoever's in the room, they're wagging their tail. They're climbing on okay. So it shows empathy, which was like what Dr. Nguyen was showing was one of the things that he fought as a scientist for a long time, that dogs had of that ability to relate to those things, and yet they do. And – it's really cool. It's one of the things I have to bring up is we've always said it. It runs down leash. You, know, you, you yeah. know, You're that proved it. And then we talk about when we get either stressed because of a training session. Now the dog is also interpreting these things from us. And then those that go compete, when you go compete or you're certifying if you're a professional and you're stressed, the dog's like, what
1: is up with you? And we want to go do this work. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I have I have two of my dogs that if I'm watching the basketball game at home, they're laying on the couch with me. I'm watching the basketball game. If my team's winning, they stay right there. My team starts losing, they leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> so and it's not like I'm yelling and screaming. I'm not doing nope. anything. I'm just sitting there going like, uh, yeah, and they're like, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh oh, Dad's having a bad day. Yeah, it's. it's, it's it's wild how, how in tune to that stuff emotionally they are. Yeah. And, and that's incredible.
0: what makes them so amazing and why they've done so much for us as humans and out of all the species.
1: Like yeah. Yeah. Th- nothing like them. No other animal tries as hard for us as dogs do. Like, yep. no way. You talk to exotic animal trainers all day long and stuff like that. Yeah. No chance. Like, nope. there is no other creature on earth that slides into our lives as universally and keeps trying to figure us out even when we're unfair and unclear and inconsistent and they still in there working at it. It's remarkable. It's yeah. Remarkable.
0: Your words were almost directly from a line I have in my cognition class, which is there is no species on the planet that has the ability to understand human communication and intention better than a dog. So I agree. primates, yeah. the ones closely related to us, all of these things, they don't have that, quality or that ability to understand us or what we want than
1: dogs. And that's pretty amazing. And and if they do, they don't care. Correct. (laughs) Yeah, Dogs care for like, they they really do. They, I mean, they want the relationship with you if you do it right. And in a sense that that, and then it's not that you can't have relationships with other animals, but it's not, it's, there's nothing quite like it for sure.
0: No, it's amazing. Well, that's a great note to kind of, you know, wrap this episode up with, um, If you're down for it, we will, when I go up there in May with you, we we can sit down and do a part two and
1: just happy to. Yeah, absolutely happy to. I'm really looking forward to having you up and, uh, and this has been a pleasure and I'm happy to talk to you anytime Cameron.
0: Yeah, no, no, this is, you know, uh, I I love the fact that, you know, we share that same goal of wanting to help others become better with their dogs and the various aspects of things that they do. And I, am again, Thank you enough to one, invite me to come, you know, do the training with you up at your place, um, doing the podcast together. And, um, you know, for those that are listening in the future, there'll be more of things that Mike and I will do together as time comes around and scheduling and things like that. Uh, so stay in tune for watching our social media feeds for those that do that. And, uh, we'll be updating you, but thank you again so much for, for doing this.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me,
0: Cameron absolutely so everybody thank you for listening to this episode of canines talking sense where it's okay to be nosy